0: It's the G.D. Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio, flavored with a dash of humor.
1: Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak.
0: Good planets are hard to find.
2: Welcome to the GD True Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Marcus La LaFleur window. is with us in the studio. And the last time you were on the show was back when I was at Progresso Radio. Uh, on the south side at Pulaski and 60th Wow, is where the studios were. That is a while ago. Yeah, that is a while It was 2009. When Marcus was, because I went and tracked it down the other day. Is it a record to be proud of? I don't know. <laughs> no, we need to have you back more often. I've, right. I've thought about you over the years because you, you deal with the, the issues that we talk about on the show all mm-hmm. the time. He's a, Marcus is a registered landscape architect um, and owns the, uh, the Chicago design and consulting firm De La Fleur LLC. Um, when I talked to you, you had just recently embarked on a project that maybe you should explain yourself rather than have me stumble over myself.
0: It's very kind of you to describe it as a project. Uh, I refer to it as a black hole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife, Kathy, and I, we, uh, we purchased a, a property in 2009 in North Lawndale embarking on a second pilot project. Uh, the first pilot project uh, we may mention today was the uh, the Sustainable Landscape in Elmhurst at 168 M Avenue. And we bought a a property in the city and decided this time we're going to do the house and the landscape. Mm -hmm. So uh, we basically did a deep energy retrofit, ripped everything out of the building, started rebuilding everything, but doing it in an energy-efficient way. So hopefully at the end, once everything is done, we have a net zero energy building. And when did you start that project? Way too long ago.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. And and the reason I ask is I live in a building – uh, Peggy, too, probably th- that could prob could stand to be retrofitted. Old homes. Old homes. Oh, Mine, yeah. Mine's a hundred and all right, hundred and thirty years old.
0: Okay, about
1: Mine, mine's around a hundred.
0: Uh, we are a hundred and fifteen, I think. Uh, also, built nineteen oh two. So, okay. So, uh, the what I w- want to encourage
2: people to do is is try this. But when I hear the expert come out <laughs> Yeah, on the show, and said
0: we've been doing this too long. Why has it taken a long time? Uh, well, uh, it's taken a long time by choice, I should say, not necessarily by necessity. Oh, okay. Uh, we did, uh, or I, you know, I'm of the mind that I like to do a lot of research, a lot of due diligence, um, and uh, that sometimes takes takes a little while to get the, the project rolling or get to the next step, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Find the well, right solutions. Find the right solutions. But we take it step by step. And to be honest with you, when we started in 2009, compared to where we are today, those are two completely different universes. When we started in 2009, you know, I was planning on a deep energy retrofit on a 100-plus-year-old masonry structure in Chicago, mm-hmm. trying to find out decent information on how you insulate that building without ruining it. It was hard. It was hard information to find. What, what
2: did you determine was the right way to do it?
0: Um, I'm a little bit hesitant to answer that straightforward because I don't want to necessarily have everybody thinking that that's the way you do it. You need to do it by – maybe preface this by you need to assess this building by building. Okay. So for our building is we basically – There's no one-size-fits-all. There is not necessarily one-size-fits-all. It depends on the the state of the building, the shape of the building, the structure capacity of the building – uh, so there are a whole different number of factors that need to play into it. But for, for our case, we basically use closed spray cell foam for air sealing, mm-hmm. but did that in a very diligent way because you also can use closed cell spray foam and do quite a little bit of damage to your masonry building. So we tried how, how would you do yeah. damage by using – and it, you closed cell – closed cell? Closed cell. Closed, cell. closed mm-hmm. cell. Yeah, there are two types of spray foams. The one is closed cell spray mm-hmm. foam. The other one is open cell spray foam. Uh, the closed-cell spray foam has, like, a higher insul- insulation value. Mm-hmm. is denser, It's also significantly more expensive. And if you don't use the right product, it basically doubles as a vapor barrier. And that, on a masonry brick wall, right. can be trouble. Because and people always refer to, like, the, the masonry brick walls have to breathe. Mm-hmm. It's not about breathing. It's about moisture movement. Like, there's always moisture movement, depending on the season that's going in or out, mm-hmm. that's going through the brick wall. If I put the wrong foam on the inside of the brick wall, I disrupt that movement, and I only can go one direction, which is out. But the brick wall basically cannot dry into the building anymore. Mm. Versus they always had been built. And then what
2: happens at that point?
0: problems occur basically the the, the wall Mold, uh, Mold. or
2: or 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 destruction of the masonry
0: i think there you you may get into structural issues because over time because the moisture the the, the vapor in the wall can't get out to the inside it mm-hmm. starts over time building up the wall gets wetter and wetter and wetter because you've put put insulation on the inside of the wall it's now also subject to freezing yeah. so once you have a certain moisture content in the brick and then you get into your winter freezing you know, you your may start... start
1: crumbling from the inside.
0: Exactly, you may start freezing up your brick. So you always want to make sure that um, your wall can properly dry out in both directions.
2: I don't know if Ron Calgill from Mighty House is listening this morning, but if he is, uh, you're welcome to weigh in, Ron, uh, uh, about any of this. Uh, shoot us a, a message, or even pick up the phone. Yeah. That's fine with me. Uh, well, and anybody else wants to call eight seven 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 eleven fifty six eleven. Are we still trying to give we're away? S-
1: we're, we're still. Looking for the fifth caller on the oak box. Okay,
2: you know, and and I think people are being smart. They know if they don't have a space, they shouldn't mm-hmm. participate in the contest. And I appreciate that. We appreciate that. Uh, Marcus De Lafleur is in the studio with us. Uh, Marcus, what what background do you have that led you to
0: doing this kind of retrofitting? Insufficient. Uh, Well, you mentioned earlier, I'm a licensed registered landscape architect in the state of Illinois. So I'm not really in the building science or architecture business, really. But I had the privilege in my past work as a landscape architect to sit on what I call green teams. Mm -hmm. Basically, I worked on a number of projects that were lead registered. Mm-hmm. And that possibly now lead certified. And the beauty there is that you always have these project team meetings. You the landscape architect, the architect, the engineers. Everybody sits around the table just to make sure that we all know what we're doing. We are coordinating because a lot of these green technologies are overlapping. They're interwoven. So you need to have sort of a cross-discipline coordination going on there. And in that process, you know, I started to learn a lot about all these other disciplines. And Not only that, but I also learned that, you know, all these, what we call like the the, the green development on the building side, uh, not only is it something that you know we may want to do because of the environment, but it is fiscally very the very responsible thing to do. If you own a building, then you know for me it was a no-brainer to go green because in the long run it all pays off. It all pays back. Mm-hmm. So hopefully by the time my wife and I return the building. We won't be in a situation where we have to worry about um, how to pay our energy bills yeah. because we basically don't have any. Uh, so those. What a wonderful thought that is. Uh, <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs>
1: Indeed. You know, and that's not just the spray foam insulation. That's all the ceiling penetrations, the doors, the outlets, uh, the everything.
0: We, we just basically barely scratched the tip of the iceberg when mm-hmm. we were talking about the insulation. There are so many other aspects going into it. Uh, but what I always say is, you know, if you embark on this one, take a system approach. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we often see is that, you know, we start green by looking at light bulbs, you know, looking at a uh, energy star refrigerator and this and that. And I don't want to belittle that by no means. But that's not how you make the big dent. The right. big dent is, you, you know, where do I, where can I make the biggest dent for the yeah. least amount of buck? And, yeah. I've, and I've said this
2: before on the show, and, I, and I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, but it's really important because I've talked to our friend Lisa Albrecht uh, from the Illinois Solar Energy Association and to Ron Calgill and to other people uh, about, gee, wouldn't it be fun to get solar uh, on the house? And, and they all look at me and they say, fix the other stuff first,
1: mm-hmm.
2: get your insulation in order, and, and deal with some of the other issues before you start thinking about alternative yeah. energy sources cut, and they're right because cut all you, the air leakage right into your home. and you can you cut that stuff and have I done it no not really uh, I've done some a mm-hmm. little bit you know uh, it I, takes I, time it takes a long time and, and commitment for instance I wa- I live in a frame house that's got no insulation between the out wall the wood out wall and the in wall um, plaster house obviously um, I need to get that foam in there I need to get the insulation in. It's a big house, and it's going to take a lot of effort uh, and And money. uh, And and what Ron says, you know, you can do it um, a room at a time, a Mm -hmm. floor at a time, an area at a time, and and work your way towards it. And that's what we, in fact, we think we might be doing that part of the house, the upstairs, trying to get some of that insulation in very, very soon. So we're looking forward to (laughs) it. That's
1: kind of what I did, too, was a room at a time of take it all down, fix the insulation, change the windows, fix everything. Yeah. So it's contained in one project.
0: If, if we do it in, in, in monetary terms, I'm using complete bogus numbers here. Yeah. But let's say, you know, you have an unimproved house and you want to install a, a solar system to cover your energy usage. And let's say the solar system costs you $10,000. You may be way better off taking 5000 of those $10,000, fix up the house first, meaning that you made energy efficient. You insulated it, you made it airtight and all that stuff then you have $5,000 left. But now the building is so efficient that your solar system may only cost you $3,000. So you may have saved you know, a good $2,000 right there. Plus the solar system has become so small now that it actually fits on your roof. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whereas previously it may have been so big that you know you would have put it on the roof and in the garden.
2: Um, uh, and so and that's just some of the technological change that's happened since 2009. Yeah. Uh, you, you said you started out doing these projects and it was hard to find the information. And now... Uh, things have changed in nine years. A lot has yeah, changed yeah, in, in in this
0: field. It does. It it. Ha- but not only has a lot changed, but uh, a lot of more building science research has come out. Uh, and you know, this is all specific to 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 our building, as we have a typical Chicago masonry two flat. But then again, it's not. I mean, you know, how many structures in Chicago are of that kind. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the majority of information out there on deep energy retrofits is on frame structures. So if you own a frame structure like you, Mike, you should have any problem finding all the information you need. Really? So frame is is easy one. Frame is very easy. It's the masonry structures that are difficult because they are a fairly rare breed in the United States other than in the big cities. Ah, oh, that that
2: makes sense. Uh, by the way, that's Marcus Steele And you should know the reason, one of the reasons he's on the show <laughs> after nine years, <laughs> uh, is that he's going to be speaking at the Impact Conference that's put on by the Illinois Landscape Contractors Association? Let me do a real quick background on that. Here's the way it works: About uh, 16 years ago, I helped start an organization called MILA, the Midwest Ecological Landscaping Association. It became the Illinois or the Midwest Ecological Landscape Alliance. But it was still Mela, M-E-L-A. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of like-minded people said, you know, uh, we really need to have our landscapers get on board uh, with environmentally sane techniques, because too many people are not doing that. And it was unorganized. And there's there are scattered organizations around the country, like the Ecological Landscaping Association out east and others, but... There's not enough. And in 2002, we said, OK, let's, uh, let's ride the wave and we'll get the word out. And then, you know, in 15 years, nobody will need this organization. And what we have discovered is it's actually it might even be a little worse than it was, with maybe the exception that people are growing more natives than I think they did 15 years ago. Uh, and we're going to get into that in just a second with Marcus. Uh, so the long story short, the organization ran out of money the so way those things go. Organizations live; they die. Fortunately, the Illinois Landscape Contractors Association uh, saw the need for what we were doing in Mila, uh, and I and I and I will be the first to admit that for many years. I mean, I helped started. It. I it ran off my computer for years, and then I just kind of ducked out and said, "I'm okay. Carry so, on." Folks. Someone else's turn. Somebody else do it. And then so uh, Ilka comes in and says, "Hey." Uh, We need this. Uh, We know your organization can't stay around anymore. How about we'll absorb some of the members into ours and we'll have a a sustainable committee, committee that you can be on. And we'll put this conference together because Mila used to put a conference together every year about sustainable landscaping. Well, this is the second year that ILCA has put on their impact conference, which is the Sustainable Landscaping Conference. And uh, it was very successful last year. Peggy and I are going to be there this year. We're going to be doing Facebook Live from there on the 16th of October. Uh, and one of the speakers is Marcus. And what is it that you and all the information, by the way, is at my website, Mike Or you can go to ilca dot net slash impact hyphen conference or just go to my website. Uh, so what do you plan to present at the impact conference, Marcus?
0: Um, I'm presenting on the subject of sustainable stormwater management. Mm -hmm. Which Uh, is all part of the footprint. I mean, we just were talking
2: about insulation, that sort of thing. But you can't ignore the vegetation
0: around your house, right? No, not really can you ignore the vegetation around the house. But because we are living in the Midwest, uh, one of the most effective ways to uh, do sustainable stormwater management is to actually... Combine it with the use of our native vegetation. That really begins to drive the system, particularly on the non-structural part. And we can talk on a little bit about what non-structural and structural means.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, we definitely will because we've got about a minute here, and then we're going to have to break. So, uh, and one of the things that I want people to chew on before we we come back is something you and I talked about the other day, which is it's great to plant natives in your yard, and we talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. But as you say, it's hard to find people who will maintain those natives in, uh, for you. It's hard to find the expertise. The people are possibly there, but we need the expertise. Well, it's kind of the same thing, All isn't right. it? <laughs> We're splitting hairs here. Okay, yeah, okay, that's what we're going to talk about. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Marcus De La Flores in studio. We will be right back.
1: This is not normal.
2: That's what we're doing here. We do it every Sunday morning on the Mike Novak Show, uh, especially to those people looking for help with their gardens, looking for help with their homes. Mm-hmm. That's why we have Marcus De La Fleur here in the studio. We were talking about leaving the Benjamins behind, which is uh, part of the talk you're doing. Uh, would you care to explain that one more time to uh, the folks
0: listening on the radio? Yeah, so my presentation is, uh, is titled, uh oh, help me out. What was the title again?
1: Water in the Benjamin, uh, actually blue and green. Blue, water in the Benjamins. blue and
0: green water in the Benjamins. So, how the title came about is that we talked about a bit earlier that it's hard to find the expertise um, to actually maintain some of these native landscapes. Now there are tons of landscape companies and landscape crews out there that you know maintain our state of school landscape. They know their job very well. They do very well on that one. My argument is uh, they don't really have these companies don't have to give anything up. While taking one or two of their crews and begin to train them on the maintenance of some mm-hmm. of these native landscapes. Um, if they don't have the contracts to maintain native landscapes, those crews can continue to do what they do with the status quo landscapes, no problem at all. But the moment the first request or proposal or request for proposal rolls in, they would have those crews ready to dip into that marketplace. And by basically ignoring that marketplace and not training one or two of their crews on the natives, they're leaving money on the table. Because the native landscapes are out there, and we are basically on the designer and engineering side, we are basically sort of in a, in a holding pattern in that we would like to design and install many, many more of those, but sometimes we sort of have to hold back because we don't have access to the crews to maintain them. Because we don't really want to build and install landscape without knowing that it can be maintained properly, mm-hmm. so that investment actually comes through. So it's this catch twenty two. Well, I. Okay, I have some opinions
2: on this, having been involved with landscapers over the year, years. Um, one of which is, in my experience, and I could be wrong about this, I think it's harder to find somebody who's going to maintain a landscape than put it in. A lot of designers, installers, they want to they want to throw that puppy in there and then walk away, and because we're done, we're moving on to the next thing here. It seems to me the the maintenance is the hard part. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you can't find it, and, which leads to my other question. It's something we talked about the other day, which is when people sell you on native plants, they say they kind of take care of themselves. Uh, you know, once they're established, you, uh, you 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 don't have to to you, add done. pesticides yeah. and yeah, and you're right. You know, and watering is is a less of a requirement and that sort of thing. What's the flaw in that argument?
0: The flaw in that argument is that. Saying a landscape takes care of itself rings true as much as saying your car takes care of itself. <laughs> no, it doesn't. You know, you need to do no, your, it doesn't. Your, Hey, listen, I tell people they want
2: a no-maintenance landscape. I say there's no such thing. Even if you put plastic, even if you put AstroTurf and plastic use, you would have to do some maintenance.
0: Absolutely. And uh, uh, there are different levels. Of maintenance input that certain landscapes require, I give you that some of them are higher maintenance, some of them are lower maintenance, but you know the the, the maintenance free landscape that's a, a dream we are chasing that doesn 't really exist. Uh, so with that in mind, it, no matter what you do, you require, you, you will need to have some maintenance that has to go into the man- landscape to sustain it over the long term.
2: And uh, this is what you're not finding in the industry.
0: It's a mindset thing. Uh, You know, on the design side, a lot of times we sort of sell that product, like you're taking it out of the store and you're wearing it once and then it goes in the closet. But that doesn't work with landscapes. You know, you you need to sort of keep them maintained. And again, like I said earlier, depending on what landscape you have, it may take more maintenance, it may take less maintenance. What I would like to think is that some of the native installations we have, uh, overall, the cost of a year may take less than an equivalent uh, conventional landscape. Uh, And that is, you know, let's say, um, I mean, if I replace native vegetation with turf grass, that's an unfair comparison. But if I compare, like, a native planting with a conventional planting, then the native one may come uh, out ahead because that overall may require less maintenance than the conventional planting.
2: Well, (laughs) I I think of the conventional planting, if you have uh, hydrangeas or pachysandra or... Uh, almost any kind of uh, ornamental roses, mm-hmm. um, they all require work. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but natives do too, because uh, in the spring, say you've got grasses, um, you're going to probably cut those to the ground. So you've got to come out and do some maintenance in the spring to rejuvenate the, uh,
0: the, uh, the uh, landscape that you have. The, the, the highest concentration of maintenance does occur in the spring. And uh, in some cases, uh, you may need to cut stuff back. Um, spring cleaning, as we call it, or some call it, but actually for the main de- native vegetation, what you really would like to do, if you can, you would like to burn it back, burn it down. But a lot of places can't. You can't do that. So that is also a myth. Oh really? <laughs> yes. I mean, okay. If if you have your rain garden with native vegetation coming right up to your vinyl siding, then of course you don't want to burn that. Mm-hmm. But you'd be surprised how many smaller native landscapes, you actually can burn. And again, there are professionals out there that do that for a living. If you're unsure, call them. They come out, they take a look, and they will let you know, yes, you can burn this one, or no, you cannot burn this one, because they know what to look for. And is that part of the maintenance that you're talking about? The native vegetation of our prairies is what we call a, a pyrophytic ecosystem. They basically have evolved with fire. So by burning them back every spring, I really get the most out of the landscape year after year after year because those plants respond respond extraordinarily well to the fire treatment.
2: And, 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 but the point I'm making is, is this the kind of maintenance that you can't find? That, you, that, you're... that
0: is part of it. Actually, finding that maintenance is almost a little bit easier than finding then a crew who can come back for the rest of the summer to check for... Uh, the voluntary species that grow in the in the plantings that we don't want that we want to keep under control that we want to pull out. Right. That expertise is almost a bit harder to That's find. That's hard. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, uh, let's take, for example, something we're going to talk about
2: on this show very, very soon, because I've talked about it before, which is the weed ordinance in Chicago and in other cities where people get fined $600 because they're growing native plants. And the city says, well, the the law tells you you can't have anything above 10 inches in your yard. And so they slap these fines on people. And and the city, uh, workers have no idea... They can't tell the difference between overgrown turf grass and native plantings, and that's insane. That's nuts, and that just tells you that there's no education out there for these municipal workers. But that's so. This is this is part of the issues too. But we only have a few more minutes. I want to get to something that you uh, you work on a lot, and that we haven't really touched on. We've only touched a little bit. Is 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 water maintenance on your property that's Mm -hmm. that's a big deal too because i i assume i look at my own property and i go this is it's chaos the water maintenance now in my backyard it's better than my neighbors if only because i'm a gardener and my yard is not compacted beyond uh, all repair Mm -hmm. whereas the compacted lawn next door becomes a lake in a rainstorm mine drains but part of that lake comes into my yard Mm -hmm. Because they have compacted soil. So we're not really paying attention to water management on our
0: properties, are we? No, we don't. And that's, those are the calls I'm getting. People basically having flooding issues on their property at the small scale, the big scale. That's where I come in usually. I do a lot of residential work where I'm you know analyzing what's going on and then make my recommendations how we could fix it. That is where the sustainable stormwater management treatment can come in. Uh, we can work in terms of of with bioswales, rain gardens, we can do rainwater harvesting, we can do all sorts of measures to actually take what previously has been considered waste, which is rainfall, and actually turn it into an asset, which is water, Mm -hmm. and uh, move it through and into the landscape in a way that makes sense, in a way that uh, fits the original historic hydrology. And thus we can significantly reduce the risk of flooding.
2: And, folks, if they want that information, they can just go to your website and then contact you. Uh, it is D-Lafleur, and that's spelled dot com. You have a blog as well, so you, you, you write about these things. Um, I've been meaning to talk to you for nine years about coming to my house, and how do I get the – got to understand, I live in the smack in the middle of the city, and the house next to me is five feet away in this tiny little gangway mm-hmm. and I, but water gathers there in that gangway and the concrete is broken up anyway. And I'm thinking, well, you know what I should, and, and half of it leaks into my basement and I'm thinking, how do I channel that water out of that tiny little space? So it's not going into my basement. And then of course I got my neighbors who bring water into my basement from the other side because they've got their compacted soil. I mean, these are all issues I'd love to address, but it seems overwhelming
0: to me. Is it overwhelming? It, it, if you're a property owner, that it, it is overwhelming. I can totally get that, and i constantly run into this one. And, you know, think about this way. I mean, you know, most throughout the year, it doesn't matter. It's like that one or two times a year where we get that one storm. Right. That causes you to have the water in the basement. And the problem right now with the way we are going is that these events intend or, or seem to become more frequent and even more intense, so the problem-solve starts getting worse over time, the climate change, et cetera. Um, so we are, trying, we are trying to nip it in the bud by coming up with a solution to redirect the water in a more sustainable way and uh, prevent those items like you know, having the water p- uh, pond in the gangway and then ending up in the basement.
2: Right. What's the, uh, we got a minute. What's the simplest thing people can do to start that process?
0: Thinking through it in a logical way. And just thinking about the easy stuff throwing a rain barrel under the downspout it doesn't really make a dent think about where is the water coming from how much is there where is it going and once you understand that process then you can actually come up with a solution on how to manage it
2: wow, this is a guy who comes on the show he says, here's the solution think about it, do some research figure it out Nobody wants to figure stuff out, Mark. They call me. <laughs> That's right. Marcus Steele of Floor, thank you so much for being in the studio with us. We're going to continue this conversation, and it's not going to be nine years uh, between <laughs> visits. Are we not green? We're green. We are Devo. Are we Groot? Are we Dvorak? Are we... I don't know what we are anymore. All I got to say we is... We are green. We are green. Until next time, go green or... Go
1: home. Uh, Stadler? Yeah, uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.